Section 1 of Malaria, a Neglected Factor in the History of Greece and Rome, by William Henry Samuel Jones and Ronald Ross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 1. Introduction. By Ronald Ross, Professor of Tropical Medicine, University of Liverpool. The author of this very instructive and interesting little book has asked me to write a short introduction to it. I can only hope that my forward will not prove incongruous to a work over which he has spent so much enthusiastic labour. A student of biology is often struck with the feeling that historians, when dealing with the rise and fall of nations, do not generally view the phenomena from a sufficiently high biological standpoint. To me, at least, they seem to attach too much importance to individual rulers and soldiers, and to particular wars, policies, religions and customs, while at the same time they make little attempt to extract the fundamental cause of national success or failure. We may suspect that these are really more sociological than humanistic, that is, common to races of animals and of men, rather than peculiar to the latter. I see no reason to suppose that the Roman and the Megatherium were not struck down by similar causes. There must be a great complex of causes which produces racial predominance and decay, a complex of still greater intricacy in the case of man. Possibly the causes of racial death may be classified under the same headings as those of individual death, physiological, pathological, and traumatic. For example, the individual man is built up from a single zygote, or combined cell, by means of reiterated division, until ultimately his body is composed of billions of cells, organized in different castes and professions, so that he is, in fact, himself a great nation of associated beings. Death may overtake this microcosmic nation either, apparently, from exhaustion of the power of cellular reproduction, or from pathological destruction, poisoning, or paralysis of certain essential castes of cells, or from forcible disruption of the whole organization. Hypothetically, then, we might expect similar phenomena, in a race of animals or a tribe of men, decadence or death from exhaustion of the reproductive faculty from pathological necrobiosis of individuals or from direct destruction by enemies. Since a conception, which can of course be enunciated here only in the briefest manner, will force itself especially on those who have had opportunities of knowing many races of mankind, what is it that causes the infinite diversity of type and of ability? Why, for example, in India, do we obtain under much the same conditions of race, climate and government so many different types, from that of the brave and massive Sikhs to that of the timid and feeble inhabitants of many localities? Success in war must be rather a result than a cause. The wisdom of individual rulers can exert but a temporary effect. Doubtless, marriage customs, by the substitution of parental for sexual selection, must exert a bad effect on the eugenics of some races. Overcrowding may act by the greater facilities which it gives for the dissemination of parasitic diseases, by the production of poverty, or by some other and as yet unknown means. Vices, superstition, misgovernment, and finally intellectual decadence, like failure in war, are probably secondary to the original causes. Among the most potent of these, and yet strangely overlooked by historians, must be widespread disease. 
I do not mean epidemic infections such as plague and cholera, which sweep through a population for a time and then leave it, but those endemic diseases which, when once introduced, oppress it forever, particularly those which attack the children, kill many of them, and render a large percentage of the remainder sickly for years. I am aware that it has been argued that such maladies really enhance development by destroying the unfit and leaving finally a robust and immune race. But there is no evidence that they do really select or destroy the unfit in preference to the fit. While as regards to acquirement of racial immunity, this, if it really exists at all, must take thousands of years to be established. On the other hand, in the international struggle for existence or supremacy, a people of whom a large proportion have passed through a sickly childhood cannot but be a disadvantage compared with more healthy nations. And it is quite possible that the sudden introduction of an endemic disease among a people hitherto dominant in the world may end in its rapid downfall as regards science, arts, commerce and war. It is believed, for instance, that many of the native races of America were destroyed after the discovery of the continent, not so much by the arms of the white men as by their diseases. I have heard that not so long ago a third of the Andamanese islanders were swept away by measles. Whole populations have disappeared before smallpox and syphilis, and I suspect that tuberculosis has had a marked but as yet undetermined effect on the world's history. In warm climates, intestinal parasites, dysentery and malaria probably have a most malign influence. I have long suspected that the extreme feebleness of many crowded Indian populations, in principally due to the common roundworm, which prevails to a shocking degree among both children and adults. I have seen whole villages and plantations persecuted by the blood-sucking Ankylostoma, or actually destroyed by the parasite of Kala Azar. Modern science has of course shown that disease is very largely nothing but parasitism or its results, but this fact has not yet penetrated sufficiently into our studies of history. Historians, in attributing the downfall of nations to human agencies, have overlooked the probably greater effects produced by these obscure or invisible foes which destroy us from within. It is this important theme applied to the downfall of the greatest of nations which Mr. Jones has studied from the historical point of view. The suggestion is that the conqueror of Greece was not so much the Macedonian or the Roman as that great tyrant which now holds half the world, malaria. In order to understand his work, the reader should know the following facts about the disease. It is due to multitudes of minute animal parasites of the blood, which produce fever recurring every one, two or three days. Quotidian, tertian or quartan fever. If not treated by Sinchona, which was discovered only a few centuries ago, the parasites remain in the body for many years, causing frequent relapse of fever, anemia, and enlargement of the spleen. They are carried from man to man by the agency of a class of gnats called anophilines, which breed in small pools of water on the ground. Where such pools are numerous in the hot months of summer and autumn, and in marshy localities, the insects generally abound and if a patient with the parasites in his blood enters the locality, they become infected by biting him, and then pass the microbes on to any healthy persons they may feed upon subsequently. The disease may thus be spread slowly by the gnats from a single patient until it affects the whole country, and where it has once entered, it is passed on from generation to generation. Ceteris paribus, where there are the most suitable pools in the summer, there are most anophilines, 
and where there are most anophelines, there is the most malaria. Though qualifying circumstances exist, the valleys and flat waterlogged plains are generally the most malarious, the fact which gave rise to the marsh fever. In the very malarious places, children frequently become infected after birth and remain infected until puberty, when the survivors acquire partial immunity. In many low-lying villages, almost every child contains the parasites and looks more or less wasted and pale, with greatly enlarged spleen and a dusky complexion. People who live on the surrounding hills, though these may be healthy enough, easily become infected when visiting the lower villages for marketing or agriculture. We have all heard of Mauritius, that earthly paradise which witnessed the sorrows of Paul and Virginia. But in 1866, malaria was introduced in some manner, and has caused infinite injury to the island ever since. So also in many localities the disease has crept from village to village, enfeebling and stupefying the inhabitants like cretinism. An intensely malarious locality cannot thrive. The children are wretched, the adults frequently racked with fever, and the whole place shunned whenever possible by the neighbours. The landowner, the traveller, the innkeeper, the trader fly from it. Gradually it becomes depopulated and untilled, the home only of the most wretched peasants. Turning now to Greece, we shall easily understand from a consideration of its topography how readily it must fall under the sway of malaria. Rugged and mountainous, the only inhabitable spots are a few small plains and valleys, that is, just those places where pools of water most suitable for anophelines are likely to be formed. True, the rainy season in Greece is the winter, when the insects do not breed. But still, even in the summer, the valleys are traversed by perennial fountains and streams which issue from the surrounding mountains, and which, while they make agriculture possible, at the same time tend to produce small marshes, often close to the villages. From these, the insects can swarm into the houses where they become infected by biting the inhabitants and so carry the infection from person to person for months, until almost everyone in the locality contains the germs of the disease. As is now known to a certainty, such is the actual method by which malaria is propagated. I suppose this subfamily of gnats must have been present in Greece from very remote prehistoric times, but it does not therefore follow that malaria also existed there from the same time. The gnats alone are not sufficient. They are only the carriers of the parasites, and these also must be introduced at some period or other before the disease can spread in a locality. It is quite possible that if ancient Greece was peopled by invaders coming from northern non-malarious latitudes, it might have had no malaria for ages, in spite of the presence of the anophelines, until some person with the parasites in his blood happened to visit the country. Then, if he was bitten by the insects, they would carry the infection to others in his neighbourhood, and from these, to others further afield, until the disease would be gradually spread all over the country, just as had certainly occurred recently in Mauritius, and probably in many other lands besides these. For example, I think there is much reason for supposing that malaria was not always present in Italy, and that the Campagna, now so desolated by it, must have been healthy until quite up to the historic period. So also, perhaps, the divine valleys of Greece may have remained unsullied by the smiasma, this pollution, until soldiers, merchants, or slaves coming from Africa or Asia 
the ancient homes of malaria introduced it. Once introduced, it must have spread from valley to valley with fearful effect upon the inhabitants. It would probably have seized first the most low-lying and fertile valleys, especially the cultivated outskirts of the cities, and have thence spread into the upland villages, and even into the heart of some of the cities. Everywhere the children would be attacked, and would remain infected with pale complexions, emaciated frames, and enlarged spleens, until puberty, when a partial, but only partial, immunity might rescue the properly stunted bodies of the survivors from further illness. Gradually the whole rural life of the affected area would be vitiated. The hardy peasantry and the vigorous soldiers would no longer be found. The rich would desert their villas, and the priests and rural shrines of the gods. Still further, supposing that at the same time, members of Africans and Asiatics had been poured into the country as slaves, these people already probably inured to malaria in their tropical homes would survive, while their fair-haired masters and masters' children would gradually tend to be eliminated, so that, after perhaps a century or two, the whole character of the population might gradually be changed. And I expect this change would be much more fundamental than any which could be produced by temporary wars and invasions, because the same cause would tend to produce the same results from century to century, the fairer northern succumbing, where the more injured races of the south survive, just the opposite, in fact normalarious countries, where the more vigorous northerer tends to oust the southerner. Of course, on this hypothesis, we might expect the original races to survive better in the normalarial islands of the archipelago, a thing which travellers aver has actually happened. Malaria has quite possibly produced similar results in southern Italy, but its effect on that country was probably less marked than its effect on Greece, because the ratio of malarious to non-malarious areas in the former seems to be much smaller than in the latter, where almost every valley can harbour it. Modern Greece is intensely malarious. In the Copaic Plain, examined by me last year, I estimated that quite half the children were infected, even in June before the annual malaria season had commenced. The Attic Plain is, and probably always was, much healthier owing to its dry climate, but numbers of other plains and valleys are certainly as bad as the one I studied. The Grecian Anti-Malaria League has collected excellent statistics on the subject, and these have been published by Drs. Savas, Cardomatis, and others. For instance, it has been estimated that in the unhealthy year 1905, out of a total population of only about two and a half millions, nearly a million people were attacked with malaria, and nearly 6,000 died. Blackwater fever, the worst form of malaria, is exceedingly common. I have never seen, even in India and Africa, villages more badly infected than Mulki and Skripal in the Copaic district. The Greek army is as heavily infected as was the Indian army until the last few years. Of course, we must not assume that an event actually did occur only because it may have occurred, but a priori, it seems likely that malaria was introduced into Greece about the time of the Greek invasions of Asia and Africa by slaves or by sick soldiers returning to their homes. It would require, say, half a century to obtain a firm hold of the country, and then would probably undermine that august civilization when at its height. Let us gaze for a moment at those magnificent marvels which have recorded forever the finest development of the human form, 
Were these gods and heroes born out of the imagination of a people infested and degraded by malaria? What trace or suggestion of their disease would the well-trained eye of the medical man detect either in them or in the less idealised figures on the tombstones? All these are evidently the creations of a large and healthy northern race, more akin to the Scandinavian race of today, at least so it appears to me, than to any other. I find it difficult to imagine that the people who produced this great sculpture and the no less magnificent science and literature of ancient Greece could have ever suffered very much from malaria. True, it may be said that the disease was present among them during the whole of the Great Age, but only to a slight degree. But this is difficult to understand, because the existence of even a few endemic cases would suffice, given the presence of the carrying agents, to produce a wide and rapid extension. Again, it may be argued that the malaria as seen in Greece today was not a cause, but a result, due to the neglect of cultivation caused by the devastation of wars. But here also I may say that I have seen no evidence of the hypothesis that uncultivated lands are really more malarious than cultivated ones. All cultivation requires water, and frequently requires artificial irrigation. While the mere occupancy of cultivated land by the peasantry tends to ensure the presence of the parasite, so that devastation should, and does, I think, reduce malaria instead of increasing it. On the whole, therefore, it seems probable that malaria would have reached its present degree of prevalence increase very shortly after its introduction, and must have been the cause, or a cause, of the rapid decline of the country after the Great Age, and not the result of that event. The difficult task of seeking historical evidence in this connection has been aptly taken up by Mr. Jones, and I hope his work will not only be of interest to scholars, but will stimulate further research in a direction which has not been much followed. He suggests, moreover, that the story of malaria in Greece should be of importance to all malarious countries, and shall help in that war, which is now being commenced against the disease in many places. In this war we must welcome every possible ally. End of section 1